0: Well, congregation, as you can see this morning, I am in no way Pastor Jared. He's about a foot taller than me. Uh, He's a little bit uh, skinnier than I am as well. Um, We will not discuss that part of it today, but I am thrilled to be able to worship with you. I'm thrilled to be able to uh, bring what God's laid on my heart this morning to share from the Word. And we're going to continue in the book of John this morning. We've been there for quite some time, and we're going to be in John chapter 12 this morning, and so what I want to do is I want to go ahead and read our passage, and then we're going to dive in. So if you would scroll or flip, uh, turn there, um, it's also going to be on the back screen. If you would read along with me as I read John chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. And we will continue this morning in John chapter 12. And I just read those verses 1 through 11. And I hope that as we've been working through the book of John, I hope you have been as blessed as I have been uh, working through the book of John. As we see uh, the life of Jesus, we see the gospel story of Jesus from the account and from the perspective of the Apostle John, Um, we've been privileged to see the life and the ministry of the most influential person to ever walk this earth, the most influential person to ever walk this earth. The incarnation of Christ Jesus, his life on earth marks a high point in history. We can see this on our calendar as we look at time before Christ, B.C., and we look at time after Christ, A.D. Now, Christ not only divides the calendar of human history, he divides human history and destiny itself. Even while walking this earth, Christ made statements about this division that he would bring. John 8, 24, Jesus says, "'Unless you believe that I am he,' referring, he's referring to himself as Christ, the son of God, you will die in your sins. In Luke 12, 51, Jesus says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Now this morning, I've titled this sermon, The Great Divide, because it is clear that the life and the ministry of Christ Jesus brings a great deal of division. In fact, I would argue this morning that there is no greater division than that which Christ brings. In his commentary, John MacArthur says this, Like no one else, Jesus Christ evokes the antithetical. I had to look that word up too. It means directly opposed. <laughs> the gospel, uh, like no one else, Jesus Christ evokes the antithetical extremes of love and hate. Devotion and rejection. Rejection. Worship and blasphemy, faith and unbelief, how people respond to him divides the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, believers from unbelievers, the saved from the lost. The Gospel of John it presents Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah, the promised deliverer, and throughout the book we see differing responses to uh, Jesus, the person of Christ. And we see, you know, all throughout the book of John, he's saying who he is. He's declaring who he is. He is the son of God here to step into time to, uh, to live a sinless life and that the son of, son of man will be delivered over into the hand of sinners. He is saying who he is the entire time throughout this gospel of John. And we see varying responses to who he is and to who people think that he is. We see some that believe him for what he says, and we see some people that don't believe him. John 10, 40 42 says this, He went away again across to the Jordan. We're talking about Jesus here. To the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. John 11, we were here last week. Jesus is talking to Martha. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone lives and believes. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asked Martha. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. We see that there are varying Uh, There are various people that believe Christ for who he says he is, and there are various people uh, that don't. So here's two unfortunate accounts that we see where they do not believe him. John 1, 9 through 11 says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John 10, 19-20, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon, he is insane, why listen to him? All throughout the gospel account, we see people that believe Christ for who he says he is, and they respond accordingly. And we see people that do not believe him, and they respond accordingly for not believing him. It's the clear, it is clear that Jesus Christ is the cause of great division. And we're going to see that in our passage today as we look at John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Not too many verses today that we're going to look at, but in those verses, it is packed with a lot of truth. It's packed with a lot of application for us, even in this day. We see a variety of characters in this story. And we see their responses to the Christ, to Jesus. And mainly today, we're going to contrast two characters that are drastically, that is a big word this morning. Are we there this morning? Yeah? Okay, cool. Mainly, we're going to contrast two characters that are drastically, got it on try number two, different from each other in their heart and their actions concerning Christ. So we're going to look at these first two verses. I will read them again in case we have forgotten in the last few minutes. Verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So the first thing that we need to take note of in these first few verses is that we are now in the last week of the life of Christ. We are now in the last week of the life of Christ. Of Christ. In previous chapters, uh, we see that John has walked through the life and the ministry of Jesus, and, and now things are beginning to unravel. They're beginning to heat up. We've seen 11 chapters of Jesus' earthly ministry about three years in time, and now we're here at chapter 12. And I'll go ahead and tell you that in the chapters following, things are going to get crazy. They're going to heat up. Now, if you'll rewind with me, uh, we have just seen a miracle-working power of Jesus in chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This was an epic miracle. It was so magnificent that the religious leaders were scared. They were frustrated. I mean, up to this time, they've seen Jesus do so many miraculous things, and, and they didn't like it. But now he's done something absolutely incredible. He has raised somebody from the dead. They were in a tomb. They were knocked out cold. They were dead. Lazarus was dead, and Jesus raised him from the dead. This was the last straw. The religious leaders were out for blood. They wanted to put Christ to death. And as we'll see in just a few short verses today, uh, they wanted to destroy any proof of his wonder-working power, a.k.a. A living Lazarus. Now, the religious leaders they, had, they were seeking to put Jesus to death. We saw this in our last chapter 11 last week. Um, and so, what Jesus did is he went and for, for some time he stayed in a village called Ephraim. Uh, this village was 13 miles northeast of Jerusalem. There, he spent some time. Uh, commentators argue on how much time that was spent, so we won't jump into those weeds today. But he spent some time in Ephraim. Um, And he stayed with the disciples there uh, because we see that the religious leaders were out to kill him. In fact, they were commanding everybody, if they had whereabouts of where Jesus was, they had to speak up. We know God's timing is absolutely perfect. And we know that it was not Jesus' time yet to be delivered into these hands of sinners. (laughs) And so he was spending time in Ephraim. Again, 13 miles north, uh, northeast of Jerusalem, which was the center of it all. If you would have walked down the streets of Jerusalem, the religious leaders would have been there. But then we get here to chapter 12, and he is in Bethany. And Bethany is a tiny village. It's about two miles from Jerusalem. So we were 13 miles, now we're two miles from Jerusalem, which was the center of it all. And, and we'll see in the next few chapters, um, as well as the chapter today, that the time has come. And Jesus knows what's going to happen in just one week's time. In just one week's time, he will lay down his life for the sins of the world. So in, those first, in these first few verses, we see uh, a few characters. We see uh, Martha, and we won't spend too much time talking about Martha today, but what do we see her doing here? We see her serving, <laughs> like always. Always. Martha is always serving. She is always caring for those around her. She is giving of her time and her effort. And in other accounts and previous passages, sometimes she gets a bad rap for that. Sometimes uh, we're harsh towards Martha. Don't you see it, Martha? Jesus is right there. This is the most important thing, yet you're worried about serving and doing this over here. And we see that Jesus even... uh, brings this up in, in, a, in, in a past passage, but we don't see that here. So today, uh, we're going to give Martha a little bit of a break. And we're just going to say she was serving. And that's a good thing, okay? <laughs> so we see Martha here serving, and then we are introduced to Lazarus. Now, I want to just bring draw your attention to something crazy that I thought was amazing to see um, in this first few verses, is that the Passover was... Or six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, comma, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Not just where Lazarus was, but where Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, was. He has a new identity. No longer is he just called Lazarus, but we've got this comma afterwards, Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. He can't get away from this title, even if he wanted to, and even to this day, Bethany is still known as the place where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That's what that village is still known as today, 2,000 years ago, and that miracle has still marked that village 2,000 years ago. So we see here there's a dinner in honor of Jesus. Martha served, um, and, and we see that Lazarus is there. Now, what we can do is we can look and see that this is John chapter 12. We also see this account taking place in uh, two other places, Matthew chapter 26 and Mark 14. And so today we'll rely on those two passages as well to kind of fill in a little bit of the blanks that maybe John doesn't write here that some of the other uh, passages speak into. So what we see in in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 is that this isn't just any old house. Uh, This is the house of a man named Simon the leper. Simon the leper. Now, as I was reading these passages, I was wondering, without reading ahead, why in the world would they be gathering at the house of a leper? Now, lepers in this time were considered unclean. Right? They weren't weren't allowed to interact with anyone. In fact, uh, they weren't even allowed to live inside the city, inside the village. They had to be on the outskirts on their own. They were unclean. Leviticus 13, 46, it says this, He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. But we see a dinner taking place in the house of Simon the leper. So there must be two things. There's two, two, two options here that we, we can think through. The first option is that Jesus, the disciples, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, didn't care if they were in the presence of a leper, they didn't care if they got what he had, this leprosy, this disease. Um, And then the second option, uh, and most commentators believe this, and this is where I'll go today, and this is the view I hold, is that Simon was not a leper anymore. That Simon was hosting this dinner in honor of Jesus, because Jesus was the one that had healed them, that had healed him from his disease, from his leprosy. In Matthew 26, Mark 14, uh, they, include, they include that phrasing behind his name. And, and I wonder this morning if maybe we should call him Simon the ex-leper, um, but um, we will uh, call him Simon the leper. So we see there's an honor of Jesus, a dinner in honor of Jesus. Martha is helping to serve. Uh, Simon the leper and Lazarus they're there, they're taking part. Uh, these are two men who would experience the wonder-working power of Jesus. <laughs> Could you imagine being at that dinner? I tried to think about this past week, what was that dinner like? I couldn't imagine being there. You have uh, the co-creator of the universe, Jesus. Uh, You've got Simon, the leper, who had this disease that was incurable that Jesus had healed him from. Uh, You've got Lazarus. Uh, This man was in a tomb. He was dead for four days, and Christ Jesus raised him from the dead. Co-creator of the universe, a man who had this incurable disease, and a Previous dead man. What an interesting dinner. I mean, I wonder what the conversation was like. I really wonder what they were talking about. Maybe Lazarus was talking to uh, Simon and he said, hey, Simon, hey, buddy, remember that time uh, that you had leprosy and it was incurable and Jesus, uh, he healed you from that. Remember that? Oh, and remember that time that I was dead for four days and Christ uh, raised me from the grave? Remember that? I mean, I just wonder, uh, what an interesting dinner. Now, could you pass the rolls? You know, I just want, I mean, crazy dinner. So this dinner, we have Jesus, we have Simon the leper, we have Lazarus, Uh, the 12 disciples are there. We've got Mary and we've got Martha. And we keep reading into verse three. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment Made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Okay, so we're introduced to this new character in this particular passage now. This is Mary, and she does something absolutely incredible here in this moment. We'll hang out here for a little while. We'll camp out today here uh, because this is incredible. She takes 12 ounces of pure nard, this is perfume, uh, and she anoints the feet of Jesus. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this pure nard. Uh, It was extracted from a plant that was found in northern India. It had to be imported there to where they were at. It was extravagant. We're going to see this in the next verse, but uh, this pure nard was worth 300 denarii, which was equivalent to about a year's wage. A year's wage. In today's time, and, and this, number, this number will shock you, I, I promise that, In today's time, this might be equivalent to between $50,000 and $60,000. Perfume that is $50,000 to $60,000. I I don't know about you, but I have never seen a bottle of perfume that was worth that much. You know, I love Christmas time, and and we're going to be getting into the midst of that in the next few months, and I'm excited about that. I love Christmas. I love everything about it. I love that we get to celebrate the birth of Christ Um, and the promised Messiah that came. Uh, One thing I really do love about Christmas as well, though, is the gifts. I'll just be completely honest with you. I love it. Um, I love giving gifts to my family members, to my friends. I love giving gifts. I love to see the reaction whenever they receive the gift. Um, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't enjoy receiving the gifts as well. Um, That is a very awesome thing as well. But giving the gift brings me so much joy, and I remember growing up, one of the things that we enjoyed doing was a few weeks before Christmas, uh, my dad, my brother, and I, we would leave the house, and we'd go on our shopping trip for mom's Christmas gifts. We'd leave her at home, watching Hallmark or whatever she was up to, and we would go and we would shop for her Christmas gifts. And you know, we'd look for new jewelry, we would look for a new sweater, um, there's some other gifts that we tried that just didn't work. I tried to get my mom a pair of tennis shoes one year. What an awful idea, <laughs> especially when you don't know her shoe size. Um, but you know, we got all these gifts. But there was one gift that every year, every year we were going to get this. Like clockwork, this is the gift that she was going to get on top of whatever else we'd gotten her, and that was this bottle of perfume. We gave it to her every year at Christmas, and then she would use it all year long, and she'd be about done with it by the next Christmas, so it was time for a new bottle of perfume. And it was just a great gift. We didn't have to think about it. Uh, She enjoyed it, and uh, she got to use it, and it brought us joy to give this gift to her. Now, growing up as a kid, you see uh, that it is very fun to shop for gifts for your parents because uh, financially you're not responsible for anything that you buy for them. My dad had his wallet in the back pocket and I did not. And it was great because I could just point and be like, I want to get mom that. And and he would either say yes or no, but, you know, he doesn't want to say no to his kid who's trying to give a present to their mom, right? And so it was great. I love shopping for these Christmas gifts because I was not held responsible financially for them. And then I got into high school and I I just wanted to take a little bit more responsibility. I I wanted to have a little skin in the game, so to speak. And so the first year uh, when I started trying to do this, I, uh, I, I said to my dad, I said, I'm going to buy the perfume this year. I'm going to buy mom's perfume. That's, that's how I'm going to contribute financially. And we went to the store, belt, Dillard's, wherever we were at. And we got up to the perfume section, got up to the counter, told the lady which one I wanted. Um, and she said, okay, I'll ring you up. She brought it back out and she typed it in. And I was blown away. $100 for a bottle like this? A hundred dollars for perfume? My Axe body spray cost three bucks. A <laughs> hundred dollars for perfume. It was expensive to me. This perfume here is 50000 to $60,000. Wow. This fragrance was rare. We read in Matthew 26, 6 and Mark fourteen three. we see that Mary stored this purinard in an alabaster flask. Now, this alabaster flask was expensive as well. It wasn't just the pure nard, the fragrance that was expensive. It was the, the item that it was sitting in, as well. And this would have had a seal on it. This alabaster flask would have had a seal on it that she would have to break, which would then force her to use all of this pure nard fragrance. There was no plastic containers with the resillable lids back then. That didn't come into play yet. So she would have had to use all of this in one sitting. And then we also see, and I'll just add this, Matthew 26 and Mark 14, the same account, we see that not only did Mary pour it on his feet, but she poured it on his head as well. So she used all of it. And she anointed the body of Christ, head and feet, both ends. She wasted all of this pure nard on Jesus in one sitting. We'll talk more about that, whether that was a waste or not today. And then she does something incredible. She shocks everyone in the room when she does this we read that she took her hair and she wiped his feet. She took her hair and she wiped the feet of Jesus. Back then, and I would argue even today, when I take these boots off later, it is not going to be pleasant. But back then, they were walking around barefoot or with some sandals on and it was dusty and feet were nasty. And what does she do? She anoints his feet and then uses her own hair to wipe his feet off. And this was not... Normal in this time. I would say it's probably not normal today either. It was not normal in this time. In fact, it was, it was not accepted. Uh, it was not common for women to take down their hair in public. In this Greco Roman culture, the only times uh, that women were, were able to take their hair down in public was for a few different things. It was for certain forms of worship. We're thinking maybe temple worship here, and then certain funeral observances. That's interesting. Keep, 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 hold of that. And so apart from these occasions, women did not, they didn't expose their hair. You know, their hair was an intimate thing that was between them, their husband, and that was only in the comfort of their house. It was super, it was an intimate thing. And it meant a lot to them. I would say hair means a lot to us today. Charlie can attest. It meant, it used to mean a lot to him as well. It's an important thing to us. It's very close to us. It is an intimate thing. You can almost say that this hair was her glory. It meant so much to her. So what do we see her do here? We see her lay down her hair. We see her lay down her glory before the feet of Jesus. And she offers up everything in complete adoration and worship of him. Everything. We read on to verses 4 and 5. Please read along. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, take note of this. He who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So we've got devout worship of Jesus. Mary is worshiping the Lord. She's, she is showing her complete devotion to him. And it is a sweet thing. And then it's interrupted by this new character, this hypocritical Judas Iscariot. Now, I want you to notice this common thread in John's writing here as he describes who Judas is. Just as Lazarus was Lazarus, the one whom Jesus had raised from the dead, Judas was Judas, the one who will betray Jesus. The one who will betray him. What a reputation, right? And now, Judas speaks, and, and I'll tell you that these words that we see here in John 12, chronologically, these are the first words that we see Judas say in the gospel accounts. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He was angry about this. Let me share what his last words in the gospel accounts are. They can be found in Matthew 27. I have betrayed innocent blood. What a reputation that Judas has. But let's just pretend we don't know anything about Judas. Let's pretend we don't know what's going to happen in chapter 18 when Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus let's pretend we don't know anything else up to this point, we would say, well, he does have a point. Isn't it good to give money to the poor? Isn't it a good thing for us to be selfless in doing that? And I would agree, but we can't stop reading. We go to verse 6, and we see that he said all this. He said this not because he cared about the poor, because he, but because he was a thief, and having charged the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Okay, so I'm going to drop any sentiment that I share with Judas now. We see beneath the surface through the eyewitness account of John, his writing recorded here, and we really start to understand the heart of Judas here. And in fact, uh, again, those of us that know the ending of the largest story, that we see that before he even betrayed G- Jesus, um, again, will take place in chapter 18, he was already a thief. He was already a thief. The words of Judas here expose the selfishness that ruled his heart. He was only concerned with how he could achieve more and more in his status and his finances. We know in looking at various writings throughout the scriptures that the love of money above all else does not bring joy. In fact, it brings destruction. 1 Timothy 6.9 says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. There's that word. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. In his book, Desiring God, John Piper makes this statement. Listen to this. This is great. All the evils in the world come not because our desires for happiness are too strong, All the evils in the world come, not because our desires for happiness are too strong, but because they are so weak that we settle. We settle for fleeting pleasures that do not satisfy our deepest souls, but in the end destroy them. We settle for these fleeting pleasures. They will not satisfy. They will destroy us in the end. And so we see Judas here. He's enthralled with himself. Uh, His desires are focused on fleeting pleasures, finances. Um, All he wanted was money. He wanted power as well. Uh, And keep in mind, up to this point, as we've walked through the book of John, uh, we've already seen Jesus shock the disciples and his followers uh, many times with his portrayal of what the kingdom of God will look like and the kingdom that he's ushering in, right? What did they think it was going to be? They thought it was going to be this political kingdom. They thought that they would be there beside Jesus with this political earthly kingdom, and and Judas wanted power. We look back at Mark 10, and I will not read all of it. Uh, We look at verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, these are two disciples, they came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Hold up. (laughs) You're talking to the co-creator of the universe. You've seen him do these miraculous signs, and then you come up to him and you have... The audacity to say, hey, teacher, do this for us. We want you to do whatever we ask for you to do. Genie. I mean, that's the mentality they had. They see the power of Jesus and they, they they want to see how it benefits them. 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. I jump down to verse 43 now. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The things Jesus was saying was so contrary to what they expected he would say. And it was contrary to what they wanted. The mission, the ministry of Christ, it was counter to what everyone had expected. I mean, at this time we read, and, and Judas had already heard Jesus make many statements like the ones that we just read. Remember he had cast his lot with Christ Jesus. He was expecting this political, earthly messianic kingdom, and he was expecting, expecting an exalted position in that kingdom. And now we see here that he's coming to realize that's not going to happen. His plans are <laughs> they're going to have to change. That's not going to happen. We see back in John chapter six, verse 15, the crowds that were following Jesus. They had already tried to make Jesus king by force. Jesus doesn't go with that. We see that, what does he do? He withdrew to the mountain by himself. That was not the type of kingdom that he was ushering in. And Judas, knowing that his selfish ambitions were coming to an end here, he decided to at least get some compensation for the three years that he had wasted on following Jesus. And I don't want to jump too much ahead of things today, But I just wanted to point this out. We'll see in just a few chapters that Judas is going to betray our Lord Jesus. And he's going to do it for a price. He's going to do it for 30 pieces of silver. Now, those 30 pieces of silver, they would have been equivalent to around 120 denarii. Four months pay. So here in this chapter, we see Jesus scolding Mary for wasting Three times the amount that he would eventually betray the Lord Jesus for. To Mary, Jesus was invaluable. He was worth all she could muster up. To Judas, only lousy four months' pay. Only four months' wages. It's just something interesting to think about. There is a stark contrast between these two characters, Mary and Judas. Her perfume filled the house with its fragrance. This was a fragrance of wholehearted worship. And then the poison of Judas's words turned the event virulent and it contaminated the air. In Mary, we see a life spent in devotion to the Savior of the world. In Judas, we see a life that is the greatest tragedy in human history and eternity, really, because of his proximity to the truth and then his eventual rejection of that truth. He was so close in proximity, but in actuality, He was a million miles away. I borrowed this from Pastor John MacArthur. He says this, The church is the safest place to be for those who believe. It's the safest place to be. You're nowhere safer than right here if you believe, but the church is the most dangerous place to be if you don't believe. Safest place to be if you do believe, dangerous place to be if you don't believe. We're going to be held accountable for the knowledge that we have Luke 12, we hear the words, to whom much is given, much is required. And congregation, and I speak to myself as well, I would just encourage you to think through that. As we sit here each week, we hear the word of God preached. And listen, today you have me, but the word of God is preached faithfully every other week. It's being preached faithfully today too. But like you hear the word of God each and every week. To whom much is given, much is required. Safest place to be for those who believe, dangerous place to be for those who don't. We can't simply possess the knowledge of the truth. We must let the truth impact every aspect of our lives. This is how it impacts our worship. And worship is not just what takes place on the stage with instruments and singing. Uh, Worship is what takes place in our hearts each and every day as we give lordship to the King Jesus. We can know all about Jesus, we can know everything there is to know about Jesus, but we can miss the Savior. We can know all about Jesus, but we can miss the Savior. We jump on to verses, we jump forward to verses 7 and 8. And we're going to see the response of Jesus. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. We see the response of Jesus and he rebukes the hardened heart of Judas. And he praises the sacrificial heart of Mary. And I want to jump real quickly to Matthew chapter 26, to this account. And I just want to read some of this, and and we can see some more things that are mentioned here that we don't see in John 12. This is Jesus talking, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So Jesus makes a symbol out of this selfless act that Mary uh, gives, this selfless act of Mary. And then we see here that he actually, he again, as he has several times already in the book of John, he made mention of his coming death. And he's given significance to this moment. In just a week's time, he will die. He'll be buried in this anointing that's taking place right here. It prefigures the one that will take place. Now, did Mary know the significance of what she was doing? Uh, Commentators will argue this. Uh, We won't jump into those weeds today, but uh, I would say not. Maybe. She might have. Most likely not. I mean, Jesus had alluded to this several times that what was going to happen But that doesn't mean the disciples and the followers, those around him, always understood him. (laughs) In fact, many times they were confused. But regardless of whether she had knowledge of this or not, we see that Jesus memorializes this gift of Mary. So Mary is memorialized for her sacrificial gift to the Lord, and Judas is infamous. We use his name today to describe traitors and scoundrels. Somebody calls you a Judas, that isn't a good thing, congregation. (laughs) We jump into verse 8, and it gives us another example of the disciples missing the point in the moment. We see this all the time, they miss the point. Jesus speaks of the poor, and he states that they will always be here. There will always be poor people that are in need, but he will not. Now, he's not saying that giving to the poor is a bad thing. And we won't over-spiritualize verse 8, but... I think what he's saying is that there's priorities, folks. There's priorities. It is definitely right to take care of the poor, but not in this moment, not at this moment. I am here. Jesus is here is what he's saying. And and again, we won't over-spiritualize, but I would just share today that there are priorities in life. There are priorities in life. There are temporal things and there are eternal things. Caring for those in need is very important. Our church believes that, we'll put our action forward to show that, but eternal worship of King Jesus is more important. I had the opportunity whenever I was in college to work at a summer camp for youth, and we got to lead worship, we got to teach Bible study material, um, play sports in the fields with the, with the students, and it was a great time. And in fact, uh, you can ask my wife, Samantha, there's many days I reflect on those times And I wish that I was young like that again. And um, it was funny, as the years went on, my mom even said, because we'd have the staff would turn over and there'd be new people on staff. And I was there for four years straight. By the time I finished, I was 22. And we had 18-year-olds that were leading worship with me. She said, you look like an old man up there, man. This is a youth game. you look like an old man. But anyway, I enjoyed serving at camp. And one of the things that we had the opportunity to do is we got to partner with this company uh, this organization called Servants with a Heart. And there's various ones out there. And what they do is they package food in these individually packaged uh, bags and they send them to places. So these this food that we package, we got to send to Haiti uh, to a specific orphanage, the house of Abraham. And it was crazy. In the time I was there, we sent 2 million bags of food to Haiti. 2 million bags of food. But the most important thing in doing that was not that we were feeding these children and we were providing relief temporally for them, but that with every bag, the gospel of Jesus, the message of Christ was shared. The food was important, but feeding their needs spiritually was way more important. There are temporal things and there are eternal things. Let's not lose track of what the most important thing is. We read on to verse 9. If I find my place there, (laughs) we read on to verse nine and it says this, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. We see that part again. We see him referring to Lazarus whom Jesus had raised from the dead. He can't lose that title. It's stuck. So we see here that the news of the miracle that Charlie preached on last week in John 11, we see the news of that, that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It's, it's spreading. This is a big deal. This is not small. Everybody around knows what happened. And they wanted to see it. They wanted to see the one who did it, Jesus. And they wanted to see the one who performed the miracle on Lazarus. They wanted to see that proof, that living proof. Jesus had raised him from the dead. And at this point in time, at least in this passage, we see here that this crowd, they're not hostile to Jesus. But they're not committed to him either. Think of them as thrill seekers. Think of them as the person that's driving down the road, they see the accident on the other side, and they turn around because they want to see what's going on. They're looking for the next thing, the most exciting thing. Essentially, they're indifferent to Jesus. And we see as we talk today that Jesus divides everything. And when he does that, there's two sides. You can't sit on that ruler. Let me go ahead and tell you, if you're sitting on the ruler, then you probably lean a certain way, okay? There are two sides. Jesus divides everything. There is no indifference to Jesus. We look at Revelation 3, verse 16, and he's talking to a church here. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. These words are tough to hear, but they're true. There is no indifference when it comes to Christ. You're either for him, you're against him. You either believe or you don't believe. That's it. This crowd wasn't committed to following Jesus. They, just like Judas, were along for the ride, along for the thrill of it. They wanted to see these cool things that Christ was doing. And then just in a few days, they're going to turn their backs and they're going to shout, crucify him. This man that we went to go see, do this miraculous sign. uh, Six days later, they're going to shout, crucify him, put him to death. The indifference there. Verse 10 and 11, we, and, and, and as we close here, verse 10 and 11, we see our last group of characters. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This helps us, to, these last two verses help to see uh, helps us to see the plan of these religious leaders play out. And we will see that play out soon. Uh, they think it was their plans. All along, it was God's plan and his timing. They had tried so long to get rid of Jesus, and a living Lazarus did not help their case. This living proof, this man that's walking and talking and breathing that was once dead for four days does not help their case. So they're going to stop this man, Jesus, who had overturned the tables And he was overturning the hearts of the people. And they didn't like it. They're going to stop this. And they're going to try to put Lazarus to death. And this story will continue to play out uh, in the next few passages, in the next few chapters. And I encourage you to come back each and every week to hear more about this story, this great story. Um, And again, it's going to get hectic. It's going to get dicey. It's going to get... Um, heated in these next few chapters. And today, I just want to close our time, and I've got a few questions for us that I'd like for us to consider. Now, these are questions that I'm not asking you to consider alone. Um, as I thought of these questions, I had to consider them myself. And let me just be honest with you. These questions hit me hard. So let's just let's get into these. We see uh, these questions. The first one, what is your response to the Savior? What is your response? This is an individual thing. Not what is your parents' response. What is your children's response? What is the church's response? What is your response to the Savior? Will you fall down and utter worship to the one who is worthy to be praised? Is Jesus worth everything to you? Is he at least worth fifty dollars to $60,000? Is he worth everything to you? If everything was taken away and a relationship with Jesus was the only thing you had left, would that be enough for you? That's a tough one. Let me just say, it's it's easy for us to say, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, until it's all taken away. And then we find ourselves wondering, wow, maybe I needed to think through that a little bit more. This is the last question, and this is where we'll land today. Is there something in your life, something in your life that is keeping you from complete and unwavering worship of Christ Jesus? I'll read it again. I know that's a long one. Is there something in your life, something, someone, that is keeping you from complete and unwavering worship of Christ Jesus? This is big, and I fell every single day. There are days when I put my wife above my Lord. Is there something or someone that is keeping you from complete and unwavering worship of Christ Jesus? In this passage, we have seen the faithful service of Martha. We've seen the heartfelt worship of Mary. We've seen the wicked and the hardened heart of Judas. The indifference of the crowds and the deviousness and hatred of the religious leaders. And today, I want to ask, which character do you fall in line with right now, in this moment? And specifically, are you giving the Lord everything, all of your worship, your adoration, like we see Mary doing here? Are you looking for that next thrill? What can Jesus do for me? Let me go ahead and tell you, (laughs) Jesus has already done everything for you. And it's not about finances, it's not about status, it's not about power. Christ Jesus came, he stepped into time, he lived a sinless life, a life that I could not live. I mess up every single day. Today I've probably messed up and I've sinned against him 30,000 times already this morning. He lived a sinless life. What is sin? It's whenever we choose our way over God's way, we are walking with our back towards him. Hang back there, Jesus. I'm going to go my own way. Jesus was always bending to the Father's will, as we sing about in songs. He lived a sinless life, and then he died on a cross. We'll see that in future chapters. But the story doesn't end there. Three days later, he rose from the grave, which defeated the curse of sin and death and shame. And so congregation, I tell you, he's already done everything for you. Everything that really, truly matters. And so today, as we close our time, I'm going to invite the band to come back up, and and they're going to sing a song, and and we're going to reflect on the words of this song. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my life. Take all my moments, my days. Take everything, Lord. You can have it all. And as we do so, I'll encourage you to spend some time in prayer. I'll encourage you to stand and sing. Uh, what I would also encourage you to do, and I'm going to walk down the stage for just a second, um, is you'll see up here we have two baskets. One has pens in it. And these are brand new pens, I might add. So they're going to write very well. And then one has sticks of paper or pieces of paper in it. And if you're comfortable, what I ask you to do is once we start the song... Come up, grab a pen, grab a piece of paper, write that thing or those things or that person that you find yourself constantly placing in front of Jesus. Write that thing, write that. Spend some time in prayer here at the altar. We've got a lot of room here. What a blessing. And then once you have finished that, you're going to take that and you're going to ball it up and you're going to leave it here at the altar. You're not going to take that back with you whenever you leave today. This doesn't just happen here. It happens, it doesn't just happen here. This is the start of something. And it's not you just writing something down and saying, I'll work on that. (laughs) No. Uh, There's a flaw there. I'll work on that. Uh, The Lord's got to do it in your heart. But I would just encourage you, if you're comfortable, leave it at the altar. Leave it there. So we're going to begin our time now, and I'll pray for us. And again, as we do so, the altar is open. You're Feel free to stand and sing as we close our time this morning. So please pray with me. Lord God, thank you so much for the opportunity to worship you today. Thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word. It's truth. It is life-changing, Lord. Lord, I pray that today we will be strengthened in our faith. I pray that we would see that there are times when we do not place you first. There are times when we are worshiping ourselves, other people, things, and we are making them idols. Lord, give us the strength today to be honest with ourselves. Holy Spirit, be discerning in that. And we're just grateful again to worship in the house of the Lord. We ask this in your wonder-working name. Amen. Please stand.